Yep. I don't mind. I don't mind whatever. Okay, so, um, well, I'll just, for my own sake, um, yeah. So, <laughs> this feels, this feels the like, moment you decide. You, yeah. Like, oh, uh, I don't know what yeah. I'm doing. <laughs> <laughs> so, always edit. <laughs> so, this feels terribly awkward, but, uh, all right. So, the plan here is to host a podcast. Uh, we're calling this the History of Christian. No, wait, a history of Christian theology. Um, yes. And uh, I tried to come up with more clever titles, but supposedly this is the best way uh, to get people to actually click on it, so we'll see. Chirete, Philoi. Greetings and welcome to a history of Christian theology. This is Chad Kim. With me this week will be Ben Brandon, Tom Velasco, and Trevor Adams as we discuss the second book of Origins on First Principles. We will look at a few different issues, including his translation, his view of free will, and that what that means for developments in theology as we progress forward in this history. If you'd like to check us out on Facebook, we have a Facebook page at facebook.com slash a history of Christian theology. Here's our podcast, beginning with some words from Ben Brandon. One thing I'd like to bring up, Chad, um, is the possibility of this being edited. I mean, it was edited into Latin, but I mean, uh, softened, blunted a little bit. Cause I felt like some of the stuff here was almost on the verge of being, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Manipulated. Yes. Like it's being manipulated to fit some other doctrinal. Well, cause he went a little too far. I, I should say, but, but, um, is that, is that something we could kind of, I want to maybe explore that just a little bit. Um, seems like as good of a place as anything. Yeah. So that, that's just one issue that I can. Sure. Yeah. Let's do it. Where do you think? Where do you think it's been? Well, are we going right now? By the way, yeah. yeah okay. Cool. So yeah. So this is an exciting study that you guys are, are diving into origin and his uh, first principles, and he's outlining some of the uh, essentials of Christianity. And one thing that we touched on last week um, was that origin is one of the first, or perhaps the first systematic Christian philosopher uh, in as much as he's building a consistent framework for his theology. And um, he wants to hit on a lot of ideas. And I think we agreed for the most part last time that he, he was pretty consistent, you know, that we don't agree with everything he says. We appreciated with what he could say, here's some essentials that as Christians we need to agree on, but here's some things we can have speculation on. And he, he starts off by doing a bit of that. And, um, one of the big items was uh, the idea of the resurrected body. And so he launches into a discussion on that. He offers a couple different viewpoints. One concern that I have in general is, is he being consistent um, here? And I felt, felt some way, some of the ways that things were phrased seem to have been softened. And I think I'm using that term. Uh, Tom said manipulated. That might be perhaps the case um, in some spots. And what do you think, Chad, do you know, uh, any background on that? Was there maybe some editing of origin by the Rufinus who translated this? Yeah, um, I, I think there is. Um, I, I'm looking at um, chapter three, um, specifically three, um, where he's talking about the corruption of the bodies. And basically, he says he this this section. Um, ben and I had a conversation last week, and Tom too, uh, about the corruptible and the incorruptible from First Corinthians fifteen. Um, and my translation has the Greek right next to the Latin. Okay. Um, and it has some Greek where he says um, 
in the end, all will lay aside their bodies. And I think that there will be then bodily nature into non-existence to come into existence a second time if rational beings should again fall. And then the Latin for that same section says, thus it appears that even the use of bodies will cease. And if this happens, bodily nature returns just as it formerly did not exist. And basically that's it. Um, so that's a, those are fairly different views of even this bodily existence. Like origin has this view that we can come in and out of bodily existence, apparently, but the Latin version, even in the resurrection, you would say like coming in and out, even in the resurrection, that's what it appears. So almost like a body is the thing that we own. Like we have a body, but it's not us in any relevant sense or whatever. And it, it further reiterates his view that bodies are bad as a form of punishment. So it seems that even perfection on this view um, isn't eternal, if you like. I, I, only, I only bring it up to say the Latin looked really different from the Greek to me in that section. Um, and so it just sort of shows because, yeah, it just, it just shows this difference between the Latin and the Greek translations. I mean, they're similar. They're just not the same. Um, they're, they're talking, I mean, I still think he does not believe, uh, that the resurrection has anything to do with the corporeal body. He actually starts talking about the Christ soul that we will put on like flesh. Um, so it appears that what he sees as the incorruptible nature is the Christ soul wrapped around us. Um, and which I thought was sort of an interesting way to say it. That's in, uh, chapter two, uh, or chapter three. Three, part two, as therefore Christ is the clothing of the soul. Uh, the soul is said to be the clothing of the body, for it is the ornament of the body. But anyway, yeah, the cl- Christ's uh, incorruptibility is a soul, it goes around us, and that's what makes us incorruptible. I actually got a little confused in this particular section. At the end of chapter three, when he's summarizing everything up, this is in section seven, it seems that he takes us to a dichotomy and says that essentially with the resurrection, there's two options. And he says either that an incorporeal existence is possible after all things have become subject to Christ and through Christ to God the Father, when God will be all and in all, or that when notwithstanding all things have been made subject to Christ and through Christ to God, with whom they formed also one spirit in respect of spirits being rational substances, then the bodily substance itself also being united to most pure and excellent spirits and being changed into an ethereal condition in proportion to the quality or merits of those who assume it. So correct me if I'm wrong, and actually I probably am because I'm kind of confused. It seems that he says something like this. I don't know how the resurrection is going to be, but it'll be one of two things. Either there'll be an incorporeal existence altogether that is we will just be souls without bodies that is something purely immaterial, no material substance with it. Or if we do have a bodily substance, then that bodily substance itself will become, he says, ethereal. I suspect that that means no hardness to it, no uh, physicalness. So, or not physicalness, at least in the sense that we think of. So it seems like he's going one of those two routes. At the same time, one, I'm not sure if I characterize that properly. And two, I'm not sure that I know what he means by the latter. That's excellent. 
uh, Tom, it's, I zoomed in on that part too. In fact, I started looking up ethereal and that kind of trying to find exactly that mm-hmm. to what extent is this physical to what extent is it uh, immaterial. And I think that's part of why I was feeling a little of that tension with the translation perhaps. And again, Chad might know this better um, with the Latin versus the Greek. Um, but it seems that there's this tension when, with um, the Platonism here and it seems that Origen is giving a much uh, deeper and fuller explanation of the second of the two options. So he said it could be immaterial or, excuse me, uh, incorporeal. We, it might be that we don't have bodies. And um, he doesn't seem to want to entertain that one very long. He gives that a brief mention. And m- part of my concern with this section is he never quite defines body. Um, actually, later, I believe he does near the end, he starts to say a bloody body might uh, partake of um, matter and therefore it must be changeable uh, we'll get to that later but he doesn't seem to be super systematic in his explanation here because he, he skims over what it even means to be corporeal but he he lashes on this ethereal condition and i think that this is probably what origin um believes the most because he talks about it the most and the ethereal I'm kind of looked into what, how plato used it and so forth and it seems to be this kind of um the substance of heaven meaning literally right. was the essence of the heavens and therefore, it's almost a, a catch-all where it's, it's not quite material. However, it is a substance. And so it was used to kind of fill this almost metaphysical need for something that was so pure. It's, it's like the perfect substance, uh, in a sense. And the more condensed and solid it gets, uh, the lower it has fallen, perhaps. And that's part of uh, what Chad was speaking to, with the, the, the body being negatively portrayed as being flesh and blood. Well, he also says right there, he says uh, the bodily substance um, being united to most pure and excellent spirits and being changed in, uh, in its condition in proportion to the quality or merits of those who assume it. So that would imply that the better you were as a person, the more ethereal your body would be. And the worse you were, the more uh, hard, more uh, material, I guess. Now, one thing I'd like to point out, I, I feel like, first of all, and this is something, I don't know how much our audience has given thought to this. It's really hard to properly define the difference between material and spiritual. I, I feel like in his day, it would have been even harder. I mean, nowadays, I feel like it, like if I was, if somebody were to ask me, what's, what's matter versus spirit? I would say, well, matter is whatever is composed of atoms and the stuff of atoms, electrons, protons, neutrons, things of that nature. Fundamentally quarks. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. And whatever quarks, I'm sure, are made of when they go (laughs) even deeper, which always is a slippery, you know, it's always kind of a... (laughs) But back then, I guess, I don't know what he would have said. Would he have ascribed to an atomic theory and said whatever's made of atoms? But if somebody asked me what is a spiritual thing, I would say, well, whatever is not made up of those those things. And that's about the best I could go with. I, I couldn't tell you what a spiritual thing was aside from that. And when you throw in, like, I don't know, I mean, mind you, I'm not saying something I believe here, but I, I remember watching a documentary, The Elegant Universe, when it was talking about string theory. And I could see somebody kind of ascribing to string theory in which you basically might argue. Now, mind you, I, again, I'm not saying I believe this, but one might argue that that the, that the spiritual world is actually made up of the same kinds of stuffs that the material world is only it exists in a different dimensional level. And that really, if you break it all the way down to strings, you're actually getting into 
the substance that would make up that world as well. So I, I knew some like sciencey Christian friends back in my like freshman year of college who were just like, that was their whole thing. God's this fourth dimensional being. Yeah. But let's go fifth because fourth is time. Uh, oh, well, well, multi anyway, four, multi fourth, fourth physical. Gotcha. Gotcha. Technically. Okay. Yeah. Gotcha. But uh, yeah. And he would like reach down and that's why God just appeared strange to us. And anyway, I, yeah. I've heard similar things like that, but it w- it's very hard but bringing it back. Yeah, so it's super hard to tell the difference between what he thinks is spiritual and physical. Yes. I think, I, and I'm trying to think, what would they have, how would they have defined it? I mean, they use it all the time. Do they have a very clear definition of the difference? M- maybe one place to start oh. would be the intelligible versus the uh, sensible. And so oh, yeah. an emphasis on what's intelligible. And for his, here's one part, though, to clarify about the body. Is the body material? He says... Well, the body, which now indeed is carnal, and I'm guessing that the Greek was probably sarkos or sarx for the, the flesh, um, but by and by will become more pure. So that's what's kind of confusing about this is we can't make body and sarx and flesh synonymous. And that was part of our discussion last time. And so there is a body right. becoming ethereal. What's ethereal? Well, that's kind of a... I don't want to say cop out, but it's kind of like it's becoming less material. And it seems to mean heavenly, I guess, is the, how I took it personally, since I was looking up just ethereal generally as use, and they thought the ether was the basically ether was the heavens. The ether was basically the heaven. So yep. heavenly, yeah. airy, like yeah. of the heavens. Yeah. yeah. What's so, that? To yeah. Um, you know, I don't have a better explanation than you all do, but I. In order to continue maybe on with the uh, some of the other arguments, part of this goes into what does it mean for God to be good and to be unified in the two testaments. So the the as we've talked about, at least as far as origins concerned, uh, the souls existed before their bodies, um, and and this includes uh, angels, demons, devil, uh, the devil, and humans, uh, or what will become humans. Um, and all of these things descended uh, to the earth um, based on choices uh, that they made before there was the physical world. Um, and so part of that is how Origins going to explain this next problem, uh, which before we get to Origins explanation, I wanted to just mention. So this is chapter four. Um, Origins starts to talk about the unity of the old and new testaments. So how do they work together? Cause there was this guy, Marcion, who I, we may have mentioned um, who basically believed that the God of the old Testament was evil um, and unjust and basically mean. <laughs> and the God of the new Testament was really good and really virtuous and really nice. Um, and we see this God in Jesus Christ And so he tried to say the Old Testament is bad and the New Testament is good. And this is also a view that probably if you asked an average Christian, they'd say they believe in one God, but they they would probably describe the God of the Old Testament as harsh and wrathful. And the God of the New Testament is merciful and loving um, as if they're almost two separate gods. Um, so I, I so Mar, uh, Marcion is not mentioned explicitly uh, by Origen, but that's the prevailing view. So I thought it was interesting. And he rejects that view um, and his strategy for dealing with it is kind of interesting. But I, I wanted to set that up because this becomes a problem that the church, as I said, still deals with. Um, the God in the Old Testament looks mean and the God of the New Testament looks nice. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, he, he sets up the tension pretty well. He, he says, and this is the classic phrase, I think I could be wrong, it was Voltaire that might have said something similar. Why does God not save these destined to perish? If he does not desire to do so, he will no longer be good. If he does desire and cannot, cannot affect it, he will not be omnipotent. And so I think it was Voltaire that said something like the problem of evil. If God is all good and all powerful, then evil couldn't exist. Yeah, yeah, that's the problem of evil. (laughs) Yeah, it's a nod to the logical problem of evil. And yeah, in chapter five, uh, Origen actually says, "And why does he not save them if he does not desire to do so? He will. He will be no longer good if he does desire it and cannot affect it. He will not be omnipotent." And so, yeah, like I was like when I read that, I flipped out because I've just seen seen that a thousand times on you know, a college university poster with some speaker who's going to talk yeah. about problem of evil. Like, well, 90% of, the, 90% of the things you see quoted on billboards and what have you that they attribute to a speaker, they, that speaker probably did state somewhere, but just restated something that has been said a thousand times. I just thought this was like, I mean, this is the earliest stating basically the problem of evil I've seen in like a kind of cool way where mm-hmm. it's like, hey, is God logically consistent with evil? Mm-hmm. You know, and I... yeah. At least that fully, because we've read guys who've alluded to the problem of evil, but in a different way, but making it that that, that explicit, like yeah. that's super. Which, by the way, Origins, Origins, a man. <laughs> I like this. Yeah. Oh, he is. Yeah. I mean, you can see what the pull to Origin is in the early church. I mean, he's a very, aside from the fact that he talks about some things that can be a bit confusing, the way he systematizes and the way he argues for things is very compelling. Um, yeah, well, to deal for, I wanted to deal first with the actual problem of the two testaments before we got into the problem of evil, because that will come. Uh, but but first of all, he does he uh, this is chapter two. You know, he draws on the Old Testament view of God and he says, look, this is the God, uh, the God of Abraham, Isaac and the God of Jacob who led his people out of the land of Egypt. Um, and the whole story of the Exodus is a God who cares. It's a God who delivers. Um, it's a God who saves his people. Um, and in, you know, and the Christians will use that as a, as a allegory for the coming of Christ who will also save his people, um, from oppression, from sadness. And so I think, you know, this just one place. And also he uses the, the, the command, the, the greatest commandment, love the Lord, your God with all your heart. And the second is like unto it, love your neighbors or see yourselves. You know, these are things that come from the Old Testament and are also restated in the New. And so, you know, just the first point being God is merciful in the Old Testament um, and God is wrathful in the New Testament, um, in especially in Revelation, if not before. Um, you know, Jesus speaks about hell more than anyone else, that kind of thing. Um, so you can't just say or posit uh, that God is just mean in the Old Testament and just nice in the New. I mean, that, that's just one misconception that, that, that's fairly prevalent. Another argument that I thought he was kind of bringing up is how we should read about God's wrathfulness in the Old Testament with a spiritual meaning anyway, rather than a literal. And I saw this parallel, so I'm going to quote these two passages. He has one passage where he says, uh, Moses, too, must be supposed to have seen God, not beholding him with a bodily eye, but understanding him with the vision of the heart, the perception of the mind, and that only in some degree. Because uh, he says he says to Moses, you shall not see my face, but my hinder parts. And then he goes, 
These words are, of course, to be understood in a mystical sense, which is befitting divine words. Uh, and then so later he parallels it to the emotions of God and goes, so, but when we read either in the Old Testament or in the New of the anger of God, we do not take such expressions literally, but seek them in a spiritual meaning that we may think of God as he deserves to be thought of. And on these points, when expounding the verse in the second Psalm, oh, never mind, whatever, it doesn't matter. I won't quote the rest of it. But yeah, it's, I, I saw that parallel and thought, that's interesting because I've, when I've just listened to podcasts and other people talk about the early church fathers and how they did their exegesis, um, they, of course, they had this literal meaning being held the lowest. And we, we've talked about this before and how they favor the allegorical meaning. But he also, but I also realized pretty early on that the God of the philosophers starts to creep in pretty early where it's like, well, of course God didn't have robes and, you know, God didn't have feet like, he doesn't really have feet. Like, that that's totally an allegory. And so similar, he's taking it from that physical, and he's making it out, well, of course he didn't really get angry in this way. He's God. And, like, and I wonder, like, are we, is he permitted to do that? Like, are we permitted to make that shift? Like, do you think it's a good idea or good analogy? Well, can I back it up to the beginning of section four there in chapter yes. four? Yes. He goes, and now, if on account of those expressions which occur in the Old Testament— as when God is said to be angry or to repent or when any other human affection or passion is described, our opponents think that they are furnished with grounds for refuting us who maintain that God is altogether impassable. The thing is, is mm -hmm. for our listeners, just a reminder, when we talk about God being altogether impassable, we mean he doesn't have emotions. He doesn't feel things. And that's what the philosophers of his day believed, and Origen seems committed to that, that God doesn't have those emotions, which is why he cannot be angry, that it's not befitting him. I myself, I've, I've shared what I thought. I, I don't see any reason to think that God doesn't have emotions. It comes, I think, out of this idea that reason is the best thing we have. Like that, and, and I understand it. Like I, I can see kind of taking a look at our lives you know, when my reason is in control, I tend to make better decisions than when my passions are in control. But I don't therefore look at myself and go, man, what I wouldn't do to get rid of my passions altogether. But that was kind of the prevailing thought back then, that if you could get rid of the passions that you were in or hold, it was constraining them. But the idea is kind of like locking them up. You know, if I can lock them up, then I'm better for it. And so the idea is God being perfect he must not have emotions. God can't possibly have gotten angry in the Old Testament. So we have to reinterpret how we read the Old Testament or in the New, actually. And it can never be God's anger that leads him to do these things. It always must be something else. And there's some allegorical interpretation, some spiritual way of interpreting the stories about God's wrath. I'd like to kind of stand up for that view a bit, um, although I understand as a Christian why it, I would be uncomfortable with simply saying God doesn't feel, you know, that would me lead me to say, does God not care? He doesn't feel love maybe, you know? And so I, I think the way to respond to that is a difficult way to phrase it perhaps. Um, but it's not that we're removing um, passions or emotions from God. It's that we're transcending them and elevating. And so the best way to say it would perhaps to be to say it's something higher than emotion. It's not something like just to eliminate it, but to go so much further beyond it. So that's why um, 
origin says, look, when we say anger, don't picture it like uh, like a two-year-old tantrum throwing a fit. What he means by this wrath is a, like a righteous discipline. It's so much higher than, than what we might experience. And theologically, that seems to be some necessity to it because even the word emotion itself um, has an its root motion. And that, um, that as a theological philosophical principle is he's not moved. He's an unmoved mover. So he, he's not going to be moved by events and, and as if he's disturbed, um, that, that has a connotation that he's being jostled. He's, he is so consistent in the foundation of all things that he is not moved um, in, in that sense. But of course he interacts and could relate to us. So does he feel love? I'm sure Origen would say absolutely he feels love, but it's so far transcending us that in humility, I think we need to acknowledge it's not appropriate to say that he's, you know, he regretted his creation. I think that's a, a uh, as they might say, an unsophisticated, unsophisticated way for a people, a nomadic Hebrew tribe, to understand that this glorious and powerful transcendent God, for, for him to relate to them um, is to say, yeah, he is angry. That's the best way to translate it, um, even though he's transcending that anger beyond our comprehension. Is this kind of like a Hulk thing because he's unchangeable? Like, you know, he's like, the Hulk's always like, hey, you know how I don't ever get angry? Because I'm always angry or whatever. Like, basically, he always has this attitude towards something in a way that he's eternally wrathful to sin or something, basically. I mean, I mean, he doesn't, like, in a moment become like, oh, now I'm regretful. Like, it's just more like, like, I always have my standards because you're, you're kind of acting like the emotion would be something that then comes and affects him, but it's not like that. It's just more like he has these, I guess, attitudes, for lack of a better word, towards things consistently all the time. Yeah. Is that, is that, per, is the, that a The personification of? is a, a symbol and it's a tool for people to understand God. But you, as you say, the God of the philosophers is perhaps a more, I don't know, I'd say enlightened understanding of the transcendence of God that takes time. To, if you speak to a two-year-old, of course you'll say, you know, yeah, it, it makes God cry when you, you know, eat ice cream without asking mommy. It's like, is God literally crying? No. But is it kind of going against him? And Yeah. And so we use a powerful human anthropomorphic imagery for us to better understand. So I don't believe that it's false for him, for the Old Testament to say that he was angry, but it's a tool, a symbol for us to understand something much more transcendent that's happening. I yeah, just, one, one other point I would make, I mean, just um, I heard this explanation last semester um, and, and it does hold true um, as far as I can tell from other literature, but it has something to do with the fact that God is being acted upon with emotions. Uh, the way that the, um, you know, the way that the language works, I mean, I can say this for sure in Latin and to some degree uh, in, in Greek as well, which is. Uh, the problem with the emotions is they viewed it as something outside. Um, and I always think of an episode from Livy, the rape of Lucretia. Um, the, the man who rapes her is said to have been overcome by his libido um, as if some outside force was acting on him. Um, and so, you know, I don't I don't think the Greeks were against uh, or the Romans were against their libido, but it was just if it were, <laughs> certainly not. Uh, but if it overcomes you and you become the passive person and not the active role. Um, and so God is, uh, and, and I only mean this uh, in the emotions. <laughs> um, if the if the emotions are acting on you, you're lesser. Um, you're the passive per, uh, part of this, like of these two parts. And so the problem with, um, you know, so anyway, rather than just say emotions simply put, 
It has to do with the fact that God, if God fe- is uh, passable, if he can feel emotions, um, he's being acted on by emotions um, and, and therefore is not in control. Um, so that's just one way to try to state it differently. I mean, because I, as I still understand it, the ultimate view isn't that you shouldn't have emotions. It's as Tom said, that they should be contained or controlled um, rather than being the active force in your life. Yeah. And one thing I would say, just kind of thinking about this, just trying to piece together some of the comments that were made between the three of you guys here. Um of course, it seems to me that emotions can't act upon you, right? Emotions are a part of you. And so it's not so much you constraining your emotions, because it is your emotions are you in a sense. It's certain parts of you constraining your emotions. However, emotions are a response to action against you, right? So if I feel compassion, it's a response to seeing suffering in the world. So the suffering kind of creates that that feeling. If I feel anger, it's a response to some injustice or something I see. In that sense, it, it wouldn't make sense to me to think that God can't have that. Um, you know, mm-hmm. in the sense that God is overcome by his emotions, yes, I certainly would think that that, certainly I would say God cannot be overcome by his emotions in such a way that he loses control. But I don't see any reason to think he can't be acted upon in that sense, moved by other beings. And I think one of the fundamental reasons is, is because there are other free will beings. I think that you, if you really believe he can't be moved in that sense, you're moving towards some kind of a monolithic view of God, almost a monist view, where there is nothing but him. Or a Stoic, well, I guess Stoics are probably somewhat monist um, where everything is God or the whole, you know, all of reality is God in pantheistic. some sense, pantheistic in some sense, or you're moving towards some kind of a, maybe a Christian view where there's a very strong sense of uh, divine determinism, where God is making everything happen in some sense. For me, I have a, I think a robust view of free will that beings in the world have a lot of freedom, that they're very distinct and that the universe is, is, unfolding in such a way where these beings are interacting. And so I think we can, in that sense, move God in that sense, not obviously do something contrary to his, um, not in the sense where we could make him do something he doesn't want to, or that we could make him lose control of his passions, but in the sense that he is giving a certain degree, uh, a realm to us, so to speak, where we can make decisions that he then reacts to. I think that it's fair to say that in a, that we must be able to interact with God and, and Tom used the word response. I, but I think um, Trevor actually, maybe what you said is in line with origin. Origin says when we speak of the wrath that is brought upon people, it's not necessarily that suddenly God, as if in time, didn't know it was going to come and it happens and he's now, now he's changed state or changed attitude. He, uh, origin says, this is actually from uh, Contra Celsus against Celsus that they're actually reaping what has been storing up against them. And uh, although I don't, it, we don't want to dehum- uh, take away God's person and personality, um, it is like a law. It's like gravity. Like if you jump off a cliff, did you upset gravity and so gravity kills you? Well, in some sense, God is eternal and unchanging and eternally just. And if you go against God, then you will bring destruction upon yourself. And so that's what Origen says 
um, that after the hardness of the impertinent heart, they treasured up unto thyself wrath against the day of wrath. So that we bring that upon ourselves. It is of God. And in some sense, yeah, he's, we could say it's him responding to us. I think that could be fair even. Um, but he's so eternal and omnipotent and omniscient that it's not like he gets changed into a state, you know, by, you know, something that happens in time. Well, that's what I was trying to say is like, I'm not an open theist, which Tom, explain open theism. (laughs) Say say it quickly. So the quick version on open theism for our listeners, there are some who would argue that God doesn't actually know the future. That is, he doesn't know future events, um, at least future events that he is has allowed outside of his control like he might actually he doesn't even know what he'll do because he can change his mind that's the second thing with open theism he doesn't know the future and he can change his mind so it's a purely reactionary like view of god which i'm not an open theist either you know i I think wherever you land on the spectrum here you're going to find yourself having some kind of consistency problems if you are not a monist or an open theist. Like those are like the two extremes of the spectrum on the monist view. Absolutely. Everything is God and absolutely everything's and it happens. Of course, there really isn't a thing. I don't want to go too much. Yeah. yeah, yeah. But, you know, anyway, all this to say, none of us are open theists. I don't think. Um, and so that, and so what I meant by that, when I was trying to bring up the Hulk, which I also thought was a great analogy, <laughs> <laughs> going back to that was I, yeah, I was. That is how I was thinking of it. Uh, I was. I was thinking to myself. Well, look. I. I think at least God's timeless. Maybe we might even slightly disagree on that here. I don't know. But I was like, well, yeah, he's timeless. So, and in that sense, he timelessly has emotions. Mm-hmm. What the heck does that look like? I have no idea. Yeah. But I would think if he has emotions, he has them timelessly. And I also think there might be something to be said here about the persons of the Trinity and emotions as well. But anyway, that was, that could be its own. That was actually the second thing I was going to say, even before you brought that up, Trevor was when you had, or not Trevor, uh, Ben, because Ben, you kind of reiterated what Trevor had said earlier about the Hulk. Uh, And that was that. I think that when we do think of this issue in that context, I find it a very interesting issue. And I find and I think if that's what Origen is wrestling with, I'm very much on his side. Not necessarily that I fully agree with the conclusions he comes to, because I don't know that I'm entirely certain that I understand the conclusions he comes to, but that I that this is an interesting problem as a Christian to work through. Like, I definitely feel comfortable saying God has emotion in a sense, but I think that's a really good question of what does that mean if he's somebody who knows the future Nothing catches him by surprise. He's 100% certain of everything that's about that's going to unfold. Then he can't be surprising. So then what does it mean to have emotions in that context? And that is a very interesting. It's almost like he has them all at once. You know what I mean? Like he's, yeah. he's outside of time. And so he's experiencing yeah. the fullness of the emotion constantly. Or something. And I believe in the yeah. timelessness of God too. Yeah. But discussing the timelessness of God is ludicrous. I mean, it's just, <laughs> you just can't speak it's about timelessness. Yeah. It's all right. Yeah. Anyway, <laughs> let's keep moving. Uh, one, uh, just a personal, uh, I don't know if you want to call it vendetta, um, <laughs> but um, is uh, but I, I notice a lot of these passages uh, in the in the coming chapters uh, that have to do with um, 
well, basically man's nature and whether we're, uh, you know, sort of born good or born evil. Uh, so this is a, an eternal debate in Western society. Um, it's especially uh, acute in the debates in Calvinism and predestination. Um, he has this line in chapter four, book two, uh, or chapter five, book two. He says, for if, as these men say, they were beings, humans, of an evil and ruined nature. They could not do anything good. Um, and and as for calling God a judge, God would seem to be a judge not so much of deeds but of natures. Um, and basically, that's not who God is. Um, God is not, you know, and, and, and he goes through this whole thing to say that we're not evil by nature. Um, and we're, we're evil by choice. And so what plays a huge role for origin in this question is not even, I mean, of course it has to do with who God is, which we've been discussing, but now we're going to, I wanted to shift and look a little bit at the doctrine of, of man and where is our uh, nature and all of these things. And he is clearly not a, a Calvinist to use an anachronistic term to him. Um, but, uh, but he, and then he goes through this, this passage, the Jacob, I loved Esau, I hated, um, which is a passage, uh, from, uh, Oh, Malachi, right? Romans nine. Well, Romans nine, but it's quoting Malachi, right? Uh, yes. Yeah. I think it's Malachi. Um, and, uh, which I, 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 for my friend JD, I wanted to tell this story. One time I told my friend JD, uh, he said, I don't know if I'm a Christian or not. And I was like, well, you're probably like Esau. God probably just hates you. Um, (laughs) 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 uh, You were predestined to be that way. Don't worry about it. There's nothing you can do. Uh, (laughs) And so every now and then, if he wants to make fun of me, he'll say, uh, I remember when Chad told me that God hated me. Um, and <laughs> by the way, it's Malachi uh, one, Malachi one, Malachi one. Yeah. But origin wants to explain all of that. What I wanted to go back to an earlier conversation, uh, which is that we were able to make choices even before our fall, quote unquote, into our human fleshly natures. Um, and so our, our, excuse me, our human fleshly bodies, um, and so it's not about the, the, our natures as in created evil, created objects of destruction, um, as, uh, you know, Romans nine would say, and the Calvinist interpreters would emphasize, um, but rather God punishes actions, um, not natures. And so he basically would say that before even the story of Jacob and Esau, the the souls and their bodies had already made sort of decisions uh, that would you know give them reason to be hated or loved not on account of how they were created because they were created good um, but on account of uh, their their pre bodily decisions not that they were eternal by the way just a reminder for our audience they are created but that the souls existed prior to their fall which resulted in them being put in the body. Which this is a very, very different view from most Christians. I, yeah. I don't think I've come across a lot of Christian writers who hold to a view like this. Um, yeah, but. this is hinting at the transmigration, and that's platonic. This was one thing, by the way, that like might be muted because some of the critics of Origen uh, charge him with this notion of transmigration, which is similar to reincarnation, though. I think as you guys are kind of hinting at, it's not happening maybe multiple times, but it is idea of this 
disembodied soul coming into a body. And so this is something that maybe Origen did uh, speculate on, that his critics attacked him, but we don't seem to have him saying that explicitly anymore, except for in this kind of form here. Uh, yeah, he. I mean, he says it fairly explicitly in the last book. Um, there's a whole section on the transmigration of souls, but but I mean, he's not saying he's he's saying pre-existent souls, right? Like not necessarily like uh, taking new bodies or anything. It's like a one-time. Right, yeah. So yeah, and they are created. They're not eternal in the same way that God is eternal. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So it's not like they're being reincarnated as dogs and necessarily or anything. Right. None of but, none of the wheel of Dharma or what have you in in, in Indian Hindu culture. Yeah, yeah. We should. Uh, we definitely definitely need to get some reformed people on here. I feel like if <laughs> if ever there's a Calvinist who tunes into our show, we don't want them to to feel like like we're trying to uh, gang up on them. We've got some friends. We're gonna we've got a lot of different views that need to be represented. And we're gonna try to do a good job of getting more people on. Uh, we try to make it appropriate to when to whatever it is we're reading, and as we've never yet come across seriously reformed works, um, or maybe that's the wrong phrase, since yeah. technically reformed theology actually isn't going to be in isn't going to come about for another oh thir- you know thirteen hundred years. But when we get to Augustine, we can at least we can at least start hinting at we can start talking about something that the reformed hold very dear to their heart because the reformed would argue that the theology of Calvin and Luther is rooted in St. Augustine's theology. Mm -hmm. And so that would be something we definitely need to have somebody on board uh, to discuss with us. I guess we should say that it's rooted maybe in the Bible, according to the reformed, but articulated by Augustine. Yeah, Yeah. for sure. No, they would definitely argue that it's clearly taught in the scripture, but Augustine is the first theologian to kind of systematize it in a way that they find more palatable. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, I, I want. I didn't know it. I guess we've already had um, a little bit of this conversation, but you know whether or not jo- God can be just and good or merciful um, in this this problem that will um, sort of come back up. Uh, I just had to reread Anselm for a class, um, so we'll see this again and again. But what does it look like for God um, to punish according to someone's deserts? Um, and also be merciful or kind to offer them forgiveness. You know, how does this kind of stuff all work together? Um, Origen sort of raises some of those topics. And his first thought is is to say that they're not in opposition. Uh, okay. They're all part of God being good. That's actually a big thing for me. Like, I was kind of really on board when he started talking about that, because it's one of the things that has actually frustrated me in a number of conversations I've had with other Christians over the years is Christians will say, God isn't only merciful. He's also just. And the implication is, or what they seem to mean is God doesn't only do nice things. He does mean things. That seems to be kind of what they mean. And that's always frustrating to me because justice does not mean being mean, nor does it even mean punishing, right? Justice is about equity. It's about fairness. It's about, doing the so it's about getting just desserts so here's one way that justice could mean being harsh or hard and that could be uh well it's what we see in the court system today right any penal uh any penal um a judgment where a where a judge demands some kind of uh some kind of imprisonment or 
recompense or maybe like the death penalty. So somebody commits murder, they're put to death. That is a harsh penalty. And that is justice, at least arguably justice. I'm sure some would perhaps disagree, but the idea is you've taken a life, you give a lot, or you therefore give your own life. That's the idea behind justice. But justice doesn't need to be related to that at all. If I give uh, an ice cream cone to Trevor and give no ice cream cone to Ben, then I'm being unjust because it's not nice, because it's not fair. Or maybe it would be fair because it's my ice cream cone. So Ben is looking really sad. <laughs> I want some of this ice cream. <laughs> well, the analogy I like to give is uh, in a classroom, right? Let's say I give a test to my students. Let's say they all fail it. Now, it would be just of me to give them all Fs, provided I did an adequate job of dealing with teaching the material and it was just their fault because they just didn't study. That's just. That's perfectly fair. It is also fair, or it is also just, if I decide to say, you know what, I must have done something slightly off. I'm going to fix it by giving you all a chance to take it again. Or maybe I'll curve it. Or maybe, I, you know, there are a number of things I could do where I could ameliorate or soften the blow of that F grade that would be fair. Yeah. But what wouldn't be fair is for me to go, you know what, I'm going to give Johnny and Tammy and, and, and Margot A's anyway because I want to. That's unjust. That's always unjust. That's not me being merciful to them, as some people might say, like where I'm showing kindness there because they assume mercy is kindness. Mercy is not kindness. That is just injustice. And so the thing for me has always been being merciful doesn't in any way need to be contrary to being un, to being. To being just, you can be just and merciful, and it's not necessarily a very complex thing. Right? In fact, this ties into our discussion earlier about almost the emotions of God, meaning that he's so consistent and it's so unified that if we look at natural law as an example, the same natural force, we might say, the natural laws that can create hurricanes and earthquakes is the same natural laws with gravitation and all of that that creates the vegetation, you know, uh, plants, uh, animals, flowers, sunshine, rainbows, and puppies. Like, that's natural law. And to go back to the cliff analogy, if you jump off a cliff, you will fall and, you know, crash the ground. And so, in some sense, part of the human response to God is frustration that he is so consistent, that he is um, so uh, unswerving in who he is. And he is good, but if we're bad, then that, that equals bad for us. And so... Um, I think his consistency here is, is huge and origin hits on that. That's great because that same natural law that says if you jump off the cliff and you're going to fall to the ground and die is also the exact same natural law that prevents our planet from rolling into the sun and killing all life there on planet Earth, right? <laughs> so that what you see is you see the law and the justice and injustice of the law is also mercy at the same time. Awesome. I, it is there is a tension though, just to be fair there to those can who, be. who think because there can be a tension. Let me I'll admit that there can be. I'm not fa- saying there's not right ever. Because one of my favorite lyrics from Reliant K, which is an amazing band by the way, is the beauty of grace that it makes life not fair. And and, and in that sense, sometimes when you're thinking of grace getting something you didn't deserve, I see why there can be an intellectual tension when you're just first trying to state it out. But when yeah, but I, I also think when you think it through no justice demanded Christ's sacrifice and that that is the grace that ended up being given to us it it was completely like i think consistent within the justice of the system but yeah we were given something 
we didn't deserve yeah. in that sense. I should totally qualify what I said with that. I, I don't want to ever, I mean, there, I can definitely see moments where mercy and justice can be intention for sure. Mm-hmm. Right. For instance, you go out on the, you go, you walk down the street, you see a guy, he's, he's begging for money and you start talking to him and, you, and he says, well, actually I've been struggling because I basically have spent all my money on drugs. I'm not trying to say that all like everybody's on the street does that. So I'm just saying a hypothetical. Here's the scenario. I've spent all my money on drugs. I can't help myself. You could perhaps by right say, well, then you don't deserve to get my money. That would be justice. But mercy would say, give him some money. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Being merciful would be to give him some money. So there can be tension, but here's the thing. As far as I can tell, there is no injustice. As far as I can tell, there is no injustice in that movie. Right? Right. Yes. There's no there's nothing. So that's the thing is it doesn't need to be it doesn't need to be attention uh in that particular um uh, in there, right? Yeah. So no yeah. And- and I was just going to add one more bit from Origin. I mean, you know, this is not always satisfactory, I would say, on like a pastoral level. Um, but he, according against his opponents who might think that these two things are opposed, Origin says, for how could that be something bad, which even as our opponents will admit, can render good to those who are good? So part of what he's saying is somehow even punishments or even things that um, ha- that happen that look negative on one view um, can also render good. And so uh, as origin believes that all things can be restored, um, any amount of, of, of like what seems like suffering or pain, he ultimately thinks can be, um, you know, ultimately used towards returning the soul to the source of good. Um, so all things that happen have some use or benefit or help I, uh, to, to origin. Like I said, it's not, it's one of those arguments that I hated when like my friend died and everyone said all things work out to the good of those who love him. Um, I was like, I'm really upset right now. Um, I, you know, how does this work out for the good? I can't, you know, I I don't want to talk about this. This just seems uncaring, but on the long view origin would say, um, that, you know, we're in these bodies now as, as, as a sort of punishment, or at least we, we feel the effects of the fall. Um, and, and ultimately our goal and even God's goal is to return us to what is good. So things that happen now can help towards that end. And he, and he seems to kind of wrap up that sentiment in this little syllogism that I underlined, he puts down in section three of, are we in five chapter five? I think this is, um, no, no, is this six? No, you know, no, it is five. All right. Uh, He says, they will never certainly, in my opinion, be so foolish as to deny that justice is a virtue. Mm -hmm. Accordingly, if virtue is a blessing and justice is a virtue, then without doubt, justice is goodness. There's a suppressed premise that any virtue is a blessing, I think. But but the idea there is that, yeah, it's it's a pretty tight little thing where, look, no one's going to say justice isn't a virtue. And if it is and virtue is a blessing then because of that um that's the suppressed premise there then without doubt justice is goodness since virtues are good so yeah anyway i uh, that was a night a nice little like just couple liner thing he does there well and also there he says basically goodness is the genus and justice is a species so yeah, meaning right. that in a sense justice is a part of goodness mm-hmm. so goodness is just a broader sense and that's I, and i think that's where the unification comes and kind of the point I was making earlier, because I realized that it, what I said could have been misinterpreted because I certainly think that there can be tensions in the virtues, 
right? And that's where the, the tension is between mercy and justice. But do not mistake mercy for injustice. Mercy is a species of goodness. Justice is a species of goodness. But don't think that mercy and injustice are the same thing because they're not. And he actually he actually speaks to that. He says, look, some of the guys kind of say that, you know, mercy is a uh, – or that justice is almost like uh, – one thing I would like to say before I hand it back over, though, just as a thought, man, I tell you, I, don't get me wrong here. I do not believe in the preexistence of the soul at all. I can think of no biblical justification for that. But how nice would it be if it was true in terms of dealing with the problem of evil and the fall? <laughs> I mean, if there was a preexistence of the soul, oh, it would deal with so many theological difficulties. What about before you were knitted in the womb? I knew you. Uh, well, I could. I think that could be explained by the timelessness of God in the sense that it's foreknowledge. Yeah. yeah, it's like just an it's like a, an acquaintance with me that is independent of my existence temporally. Actually, he uses that one. Right. He uses that verse. As a justification. Origin does. Yeah. But it does, yeah, it is useful, but it has some big issues for yeah. sure. Yeah. I love the part of the, uh, on the Christ man and the uh, iron and the flame, but maybe we could talk about that That's, later or something or next time. I, but. I, liked, I liked that too, because I don't know if any... There's there's no ex Lutherans in the house. There's a Luth, there's a Lutheran uh, usage there. Like I thought, I've heard consubstantiation explained the exact same way yeah. in Luth, Lutheran churches. So I thought that was yeah interesting. Well, could you guys explain what you're what you're referencing? So he's talking about the unity of um, the incarnation of Christ, like the man of of Jesus to make him the the man, and the spirit of God in him is like. He's saying the spirit's like fire, and if you uh, and the iron is like man. But if you put an iron into a fire, it becomes so red hot. He basically says that after a while, there is no separation anymore between the fire and the iron. It's so red hot that it, it, it is essence is actually fire if it's heated up to such a degree. So he's stretching it a little bit because what we'd say would be that red hot um, iron would actually be fire for origin, and that's why he believes you cannot separate the essence of god from jesus and then so like yeah in a way it's taking on that divinity because it's like jesus body has been in the fire mm-hmm. so long mm-hmm. kind of is and i'd always heard that as an explanation of not rather than transubstantiation in the eucharist in the lutheran church they believe in consubstantiation and the way i'd heard it explained was basically well you know it changes into its flesh and blood but it's like it's taken on this Divinity, or yeah, I, now I actually forget how it was explained to me. But basically, yeah, it was this analogy that it was like it was in the fire, and so in that way, you're, yeah, I don't know, partaking. But anyway, and if you interact with that red hot iron, you're going to be interacting essentially with fire. Like it will not be like iron to you; it'll be like fire. Yeah, to you. It, like iron normally when you touch, it's like this. But now all of a sudden, yeah. it's kind of softer and burns the crap out. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and that's Jesus. So. <laughs> Thanks for listening to this week of A History of Christian Theology. We'll see you next week for the third book of On First Principles.